The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Every once in a while, I have to speculate on the big picture without laying out meticulous evidence to prove the point. Why, you ask? Well, because otherwise the argument gets lost in the details, especially in a half-hour show. Anyway, here's the premise du jour. Contrary to what is fervently hoped for among the remnant of the New Agers I grew up with in the 60s, things are not getting better, either in the present day or down through the ages. And it's not just the fact that our TV shows dwell on technology that can spy on every one of us, shows such as Person of Interest, or that our hero and I heroes are those who can hack our technology to the point of collapse, like Mr. Robot, or the fact that computer-driven games of all sorts are consuming our children's growing up years with virtual and augmented realities that have little bearing on the intellectual poverty of their lives. It's not just the fact that our schools are more and more shortchanged and that Kids don't get broad educations anymore, just career paths based on technical training that may soon be displaced by more sophisticated robots anyway. And it's not just the the degradation of nature, the poisoning of the oceans, the water tables, poisoning of the land with herbicides and pesticides, the radioactive waste from Fukushima being pumped into the sea even today. The climate change that's melting ice caps and raising ocean levels to threaten the coastal cities of the world. And it's not just the religious, religion-based warring that's spreading from the Middle East to Europe and the U.S. It's not even the fact that all those wearing uh, Make America Hate Again hats should turn them in for I'm with stupid t-shirts. It's virtually everything that's reached the point of crisis mode in this so-called civilization of today. So today I'd like to skip the details of this mess and point out some long-term implications of history. Long before I started reading the works of Graham Hancock back in the, back in the 1960s when I was traveling through the Middle East in my VW camper, I was marveling at the fact that the most ancient of cities had massive cut stone walls of incredible workmanship at their base. I'm sure I was not the first person to note that at Mycenae or Baalbek, or in the work around the Sphinx, stones of 200 tons or more were carved, moved, and precisely fitted together, while up above, where walls had succumbed to wars and weather, the replacement stonework was much inferior. And while I was traveling about in the 60s looking at tourist attractions, archaeologists in Turkey and Syria were uncovering sites like Tel Aswad in Syria, and the most important, uh, Gobekli Tepe in southeast Turkey with 20-ton stone columns being cut and moved within memory of the last ice age. Each discovery of this magnitude should be pushing historians to reevaluate the sophistication and technological skills of prehistoric civilizations. In 8,000 B.C., that's 10,000 years ago, Gobekli Tepe, a 30-acre city of which they've only uh, uncovered about a tenth, about a little less than three uh, acres of the 30 acres, was purposely buried to protect it. From what? Well, we don't know, but uh, probably suggested a further decline in civilized behavior 
radiation levels at some prehistoric sites in India, plus uh, written descriptions of nuclear war and the ancient texts of India's Mahabharata, indicate that we've been there before and we failed to learn our lessons. Now, couple this with climate changes during the last ice age, from 80,000 B.C. to 18,000 B.C., Studies of ice cores from Greenland demonstrate 25 distinctive warming and cooling periods during that same time, probably because of changing wind patterns and ocean salinity warming over a a matter of decades that drove temperatures up 8 to 15 degrees centigrade. That's that's more than a 30-degree rise in temperature uh, Fahrenheit within a human lifetime. And we're concerned about 3 or 4 or 5 degrees within the remainder of our lifetimes. Well, how did people learn to deal with such dramatic changes in climate and weather? And would these dramatic changes indicate that instead of our current understanding that we moved from a hunter-gatherer age to an agricultural age, that instead ancient peoples had the technology and the flexibility to be able to move back and forth from hunting to growing and back again based on the environmental circumstances of the day. Over the past 10,000 years, we've enjoyed a relatively stable climate and have developed an increasingly materialist view of the world. And like people, individuals who have very comfortable lives, um, our world as we know it spends uh, less and less time in prayer because these are the good times. And uh, perhaps that is why our God is now uh, reduced to being only a God of science. And I don't say this to be cute, but because more and more science has become a matter of faith rather than a product of the scientific method. This is because more and more science is being done for money rather than knowledge, and that means corners are being cut every day. Scientific studies are uh, put together to publish in journals because it's a publisher parish world out there. Studies are twisted and lied about, misrepresented, exaggerated. The conclusions are often out of skew with the results from, um, from the work that's been done. And this is especially true when there's big money to be made or lost and the corporations can get away with lying. The pharmaceutical industry, that's one big example where drug testing is no longer done by the FDA, but by the companies themselves. And, of course, they're the ones that want to sell their pills ASAP. And the same holds true for companies, chemical companies like Monsanto, trying to push their brands of pesticide and herbicide, their Roundup products, onto the market without adequate testing of the hazards to humans and the environment. And then there's the distortion of values, which... When research and the resulting projects are all done for money as well. Well, consider this. All those ancient civilizations with their massive stone constructions were dedicated for the most part to building places of worship, places to honor their dead, and walls around their cities to preserve their civilization. Do you suppose this enormous effort was made out of pure superstition? Or were these civilizations owing their rapid recoveries from climate change droughts, and plagues to real help from the other side. In other words, they were honoring the other side because the other side was, to some extent, still honoring them. 
were they learning from the collected wisdom, the Akashic record, if you will? And that's why is why they built their Stonehenges and their pyramids. Did they have a way to tune in to the collected wisdom while we specialize in reinventing the wheel? Others have reflected on how the ancients figured out how to do things we still can't do, like the cutting and moving of those building stones that I mentioned up to 600 tons. Uh, just an enormous uh, question that uh, today's technology doesn't really want to look at because they have no easy answers. Well, other speculators have said they were aided by perhaps fallen angels, those those beings who became the pagan gods and goddesses of ancient civilizations. At least that's what the early church fathers thought, the, the Christian church fathers thought, that the angels that fell to earth, uh, the, the friends of and companions of Lucifer, became the uh, Adonises and the, the um, Jupiters and the Athenas, the, the gods, the pagan gods and goddesses who had so many uh, weak human traits as well as godlike traits, but probably had the technology or the uh, magic to move stones of such great sizes. Anyway, that's what the church fathers of the 4th century speculated. Or were the so-called gods and goddesses uh, aliens, as described in the writings of such people as Zachariah Sitkin, uh, which um, science fiction folks generally favor above and beyond fallen angels. Once uh, a while back, I wrote a, a uh, poem to honor forbidden archaeology, and uh, the risk of losing half my audience here, I think I'll... If, if you will, indulge me reading some of the verses I wrote on this. I called it Forbidden Archaeology, which, by the way, is the title of a really excellent book on the subject, whose authors have um, often been on Coast to Coast AM. <clears throat> Forbidden Archaeology, a field which boldly does decree that civilizations rise and fall over a million years and maybe all the progress we call modern life, has happened before, till some high-tech knife like nuclear war has brought us down to misery, the thorny crowns of radiation, plague, a comet strike, telling life on Earth, go take a hike, or or volcanoes, cataclysmic floods, the exterminating germ that hugs us tighter than bubonic plague, a weapon possibly man-made that mutates and then kills us all, or nearly so, but each downfall brings civilization to its knees, the first victim of each grand disease. Traditional historians snicker, they think that Darwin's answer is slicker than the rise and fall and rise again of a fully developed race of men who leap from horses to the moon in one short century. The bloom of technology again emerged and all restraint within us purged by thinking we ourselves are gods instead of self-destructive clods. Where's the proof, the critics scream? Is this some sort of crazy dream that we could have done these things before? Those Indian myths of times of your describing the flying machines and bombs, they're not described in Hebrew Psalms because it preceded even Bible text. Both science 
and religion vexed by suppositions of this sort. Many would just as soon abort all discussion of the possible by simply declaring it's all bull. Let me tell you now how such things happen. It's not politicians' gums a-flappin', but technology, as science's bosom buddy, provides the tools we'll use to bloody all the information taught in college, all that wisdom we acknowledge was accumulated step by step, the writings, science we have kept first on papyrus, then on paper, books galore, but then the taper burns brighter as we digitize and as knowledge grows we start the lies that it's all safer in the cloud, kept on big servers. Then the shroud of solar flare or cataclysm or nuclear pulse, the great baptism that washes all our servers clean of all knowledge stored in those machines, all we know gone in a flash. And huddled in caves, we burn our trash and whatever else just to stay warm as we muddle through the desperate storm of starting over once again with spears to kill both game and men. What's brought all this back to mind were a couple of recent interviews on this show with discussions of a basic longing that underlies our lives on Earth uh, and also the many uh, images reminiscent of Eden that uh, get described in near-death experiences. I think the show on longing was particularly uh, touching, and uh, I hope you'll go back uh, a couple of weeks from this show and and listen to it again. Uh, longing seems to be an intrinsic experience, an intrinsic human experience, and my understanding of that longing, going back to my life, to the ideals of the 1960s, was the yearning to return to the company of God and the individuality of humanness. That is, not to merge with God and lose uh, my identity, but at that point, to walk with God, as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. In other words, we yearn collectively and individually to be Adam and Eve, to walk in the garden in conversation with God once again. For all those who consider this story, the story of Eden, to be mythology, consider, though, how it parallels many of the NDE stories we've heard and how the Garden of Eden was God's one attempt to establish a hedged garden on earth as it is in heaven. Anyone who has read accounts of deep NDEs will, or listened to them on this show will recall descriptions of luminous fields, Glowing trees, radiant flowers, flowers that if you picked them and took them for a moment from the source would fade, but then if you placed them back on, on the ground, they would reattach to the source and bloom in, in, uh, transcendental, uh, spectacular, um, visionary colors. The garden Eben Alexander describes in his book, Proof of Heaven, is a is a very good, but only one of many uh, such examples. And this is how I've always imagined Eden to have been. The quality of planted things and the punishment of the hard work of gardening after the fall outside of Eden makes the assumption logical. Outside of Eden, the ground is cursed. 
Still wonderful, of course. Earth is beautiful, but not like what is seen in NDEs. So I thought I might begin a discussion here, and it won't end at the end of the show. And I'll I'll carry it on um, some further point in our uh, in this program um, about uh, Genesis, Eden, um, and um, the relationship of that experience to uh, our lives then, after the fall, and our lives today. So to start off, I'm going to read you a part of the Genesis story from the uh, New International Version of the Bible that describes the creation of Eden and the story of Adam and Eve, knowing that, of course, you've probably read this all yourself before, but this is just to refresh your memory. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth or on the land as the oceans receded, land is another translation for that word, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain to the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Springs, clearly. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I've always thought it very interesting, just to plant a little aside in your mind here, that the tree of life, which was um, the tree of immortality, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which brought down Adam and Eve, made them mortal and made, made them susceptible to death, were planted in the same place, in the middle of the garden. Uh, we will speculate on that a little later. <clears throat> a river watered the garden, it flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So these are actually ge geographic locations, and it has been mapped out by those who'd like to speculate on where Eden had been, where it was. They've pretty much, by examining dried-out riverbeds and the like, place these four rivers and um, therefore they have um, at least theoretically located the, the uh, original location of Eden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. And now we come to the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Note, (laughs) two trees in the middle of the garden, remember, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is the image I have of what they had before they fell, of walking with God in the cool of the day through this beautiful garden. And this is what many, many people have, um, including uh, uh, Robert Osgood, uh, his description of the paths he walked with Jesus in his uh, interview on this show. But they were... uh, horrified now because their eyes had been opened and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me uh, some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God uh, cursed the serpent. I'll skip all that. And he told the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. 
It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And they have, in fact, done some studies tracing back, or at least they believe that they can trace uh, DNA genetic patterns back to uh, one woman of the past. So that is, uh, that's the Genesis story. Now, one of the things that uh, is so striking about so many of these uh, near-death experience stories is the similarity of that particular um, vision of a field of flowers and trees. Uh, if you go back to uh, Plato's Republic and read the story of Ur, there is a field in which all the peoples who have come out of a temporary punishment uh, or temporary rewards and are anticipating uh, drinking from the river of forgetfulness and moving on again to uh, rebirth. They are all together, the sinners and the blessed, all together sharing stories, being mankind in a supernal, beautiful setting, in a, uh, a setting of radiance. And, uh, and so many people who've had this uh, near-death experience and, and have gone toward the light and found themselves in a field with friends and relatives, deceased relatives, uh, perhaps angels, perhaps Jesus, perhaps some other holy man from a, some other religion. That is a, is a common experience, that experience of the beauty of the garden. And we, uh, and many religions too, of course, talk about uh, our being bodily resurrected at the second coming of Jesus and that we will be bodily sharing this, uh, this kind of uh, an Eden once again even though it seems uh, somewhat impractical to think of uh, living eternal lives in the flesh. But uh, whether, you, whether you go for that notion uh, in your religion or not, the notion of Eden itself is, is very uh, captivating and also uh, remarkably parallel to everything that we've um, been hearing about most people's experiences as they travel uh, down the tunnel and into the light. Genesis has been faulted for, uh, the book of Genesis in the Bible has been faulted for having two creation stories in apparent conflict with one another. Uh, people say, all right, the six days of creation, which is the story that the book of Genesis opens with, they say that's talking about creating man and uh, and life on earth and has no mention of this, this hedged, uh, secluded garden. The thing about that story, the, the, uh, and the fact that it follows immediately afterwards in the Bible says to me that it's not uh, a contradiction whatsoever, but, uh, it's like, uh, taking the lens and zooming in on one particular special creation that was going on in which, um, soul life, perhaps you could say, was breathed in uh, to the man and by extension to the woman. 
that something something else happened there that wasn't going on in the rest of the of the world. You'll remember when Cain, uh, when the children uh, of um, Cain and Abel, when they when they emerged from the garden, when the father and mother and their kids were outside of the garden, that Cain uh, founded cities. There were people out there. There were uh, there were already people, and um, so the special creation that was Adam and Eve in the special place, which was the Garden of Eden. It was that one place where, where uh, heaven was um, was reproduced on earth for uh, uh, almost as if God were doing an experiment, and unfortunately, it seems it was an experiment that failed. I want to talk more about the uh, six days of creation in a later program because there there's quite a remarkable theory that states that because of the distortion. Of the of time, the uh, dimension of time in the Big Bang, that that period of thirteen and three quarter billion years, which it took, we're told, to create the universe out of something smaller than the head of a pin, uh, would outside of the, that time distortion have taken, say, you were God standing outside of the universe whatsoever, altogether would have uh, taken a period of six days, six 24-hour days as we understand that period of time. It's a very interesting theory, and the and the uh, MIT scientist who uh, proposed it uh, now resumed his, uh, after that resumed his Orthodox Judaism and uh, is living now in Israel and teaching at the university in Jerusalem. Well, I'll have more to say about uh, Eden and future shows and how the story gets replicated in some reports of NDEs. But unfortunately, we are out of time for today. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.